to Entropy to Work, a podcast about technology, engineering, and culture. My name is Thiago Ebel, and I am your host. Today's episode, again, is with Mr. Caleb Douglas. This is the second part of the conversation that we had, and in this part, we actually talk about the main topic, that is Caleb's book, The Secret Horsepower Race. If you haven't watched the previous episode, that's okay. The book is a very educational and beautifully illustrated book about the technological race that happened during the Second World War. We discussed about how Caleb ended up writing a book and some interesting anecdotes of his years of research into the topic. We also discussed a bit what were the learnings from the book beyond the technical aspects of it, the personalities that shape it, and without giving away too much of the book, the reasons why one side won and not the other. I really enjoyed this conversation. In the end, there's not a single side of the history that is bad or good or is model slash stupid for that matter. It's a very nuanced and there is a lot of multidimensional perspectives that very much apply for today's word. Once again, it has been one of my favorite episodes so far. And please check uh, Kalum's social media and uh, the link for his book that I will leave in the comments below. So that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening. And now I'll bring you Mr. Kalum Douglas. So let's, uh, I guess, finally, let's go to the main topic that was supposed to be the main topic, that is your, your book, that I'm absolutely loving it. So this, The Secret Horsepower Race, it's uh, incredible the amount of high-level feedback. As you said, like, it is not no generalization, but when you have direct, directors of Formula One recommending a book, I think that's a pretty good sign. <laughs> so I just... You know, just by getting started, I'm glad you did it. I'm enjoying the book very much. But how this started, how you're like, I'm curious about the engine development in World War II, or first, engines in general, but then why you went to this period and what is going on. I guess to anyone reading the book, it's you realize how much was going on that I guess most stuff, most people don't really even realize, but how you came up to that um well i found a photograph that i'd lost for a few years uh, about six months ago which explains this which i won't show you but um it's basically me i think i'm about seven years old and with a whole lot of model airplanes that mm -hmm. i've built <laughs> and um maybe six actually uh-huh and um when I went into welding, that was to, um, I trained to aircraft certification. So mm -hmm. it's actually airplanes was always my number one interest, not cars. Mm -hmm. And the, the only reason I actually went into welding on the automotive side of it, mostly, was that um, I had made a very unusual training step of self-training 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically um, aerospace is a really weird industry. It's very cliquey and um, tight knit and closed. It's really strange. A number of certifications that you need to get specifically for a specific job. Oh, it's it's really weird. Um, Formula One's really weird, but aerospace is even weirder. It's really strange. <laughs> so um, basically what I found out after training as an aircraft welder is that no one trains as an aircraft welder. So what you actually do is that you go and work for an aerospace company and mm-hmm. uh, at a certain point, um, they'll decide you're going to be certified as an aircraft welder and they, the company, will send you to be certified. Hmm. They, they, don't, they don't employ random people who turn up off the street with, a, with this. I have a certification. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So I, I, I spent, huh. I spent um, actually that's not true. My father spent, because I didn't have any money, my father spent £6,000 and this is in the year 1999, training me at this company mm-hmm. to become an aircraft welder. Huh. And um, I approached every aircraft company in the UK I could come up with. And they all said, uh, who certified you? And I said, well, I just, I went and did it. I wanted to do it. And they said, oh, where are you working before? I said, I wasn't. I I wanted to do it. I've got the certificate. And they all mm-hmm. said, no, we're not going to give you a job. That's really weird that you've just gone and done this without having any work background. That's, that's you know, they thought this was really strange. <laughs> you know, it really, really freaked them out. They, that's so know. weird. Yeah, yeah. That's so so they, they, they didn't want to give me a job. So I, 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 would, would, I would think that is exactly the opposite. Like, hey, we don't need to spend the money training you because you're already trained. Yeah, well, they, they didn't know me. They didn't know anyone I'd worked for. So it's a little tight family. So you're out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I think literally the first, maybe the first or the second motor racing company I approached, I just uh, phoned them up and said, oh, I've got an aircraft coding in welding and they just said oh uh just come here uh tomorrow and so i I just drove to this company and they just put me at a seat and said uh where's the bit of paper i said oh here it is and they sort of looked at it and didn't really know what it was but said oh that looks good join these things together and i did it and they said okay um you can start on tuesday what (laughs) so um it's a completely opposite approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of that's to do with regulations and certifications. Uh, the 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 legality side of things in aerospace is is crazy. So yeah. um, that's one explanation for why it so appears to the outsider to be such a strange um, industry if you don't mm-hmm. uh, if you're not part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I actually got into motor racing um, just basically because I couldn't get into aeronautical stuff because mm-hmm. I, I wasn't part of the little club. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of an accident. So although I went into motor racing, it was always aerospace that I liked more. So if mm-hmm. you can imagine a kid who likes building aeroplanes, spends a career doing high-performance engine design – it doesn't take a big jump of imagination to see how he ends up getting interested in 
aircraft engines, engines. four aircraft yeah yeah <laughs> so that's kind of weirdly uh how that happened so i'd written a couple mm -hmm. of trade trade magazine articles for mm -hmm. uh, race engine technology magazine and one of them i had some world war ii stuff in it mm -hmm. and the editor um, ian bamsey got in touch with me and said um oh i've had loads of emails from readers saying they really enjoyed your article and i said is this guy just telling me that people like my stuff so that i'm going to write more articles for him i i'm not sure i really believe this because all the other articles in the magazine are contemporary projects mm -hmm. right and yeah. i had done i'd done this article about some stuff 70 years ago mm -hmm. and i thought oh, come on you're just telling me nonsense to get me to write articles for you but um he was actually telling the truth and a lot of it is yeah there's some stuff in there with formula one and lamar engines and stuff but what is it well there's a photo of the engine taken from like 20 meters away which is kind of a bit blurry and then they'll say some stuff like on this engine project we wanted to optimize for highest power and maximum efficiency and you think oh really that's great yeah what a surprise what does that even mean? yeah Okay, and then there's kind of a load of other texts, which most of which basically means nothing. And so mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of the contemporary articles don't have any meat in them. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the people reading it thought, yeah, okay, <laughs> the stuff you're showing is 70 years old, but at least it's got all the information. You know, it's it's got the engineering diagrams and some formulas, and we understand what's happening. And in some ways that's more interesting than a really blurry photo of an F1 engine from last year with some kind of pretty useless comments about how you're trying to keep keep the torque at the same level while spinning the crankshaft faster. Yeah. As if, as if that, I, that's some kind of um, amazing nuance. So... I think yeah. you're being a little bit too humble, though. Like it's not just a couple of diagrams and, and and equations. Like you really go deep in finding like absolutely fascinating things that you just like. You know, a, a lot of times, even in the beginning of the book, I was ready. How do you even come up with this stuff? This is amazing, and I can only imagine the amount of research that went into that. And uh, you know, yeah. by reading. By doing the preface, I guess you went to people's house and asked for their diaries and and went to different libraries and come up with some papers that were like was not even on the internet. You would you you took pictures of it because they're not they will only be available in libraries and stuff like that. This is absolutely fascinating. So I don't I don't know how that happened. And it's just at some point you're just like, I'm ready to go gonna go deep into this i'm really curious about how oh, this okay um well um i'm gonna wheel out one of those kind of really dumb phrases that i've just been slagging off a moment ago which uh, is, is quite often but this one's actually quite good um i don't know when this phrase first came about i don't know how mm -hmm. old it is um some people have used it in connection with cosworth but mm -hmm. I, I suspect it's probably a much older phrase than that. But really, um, the secret is that there is no secret. 
Um, <laughs> the, the reason that there's all this information in the book is that it just took six years of um, thousands of hours of work. There's no clever trick. Mm. You just kind of have to spend years looking for all this stuff. So mm. Um, mm. I was trying to get some photos for another trade magazine article for race engine tech and actually you'll appreciate this um i was going to do something about the compressors hmm. and i thought okay surely these guys maybe they had compressor maps like we do now right mm -hmm. so i thought well, what would be pretty cool is if i got a spitfire and a messerschmitt compressor map and then started looking at the compressor maps, right? I thought that'd be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, how the hell do you get a compressor map for a measurement? <laughs> so um, I just put a couple of posts on forums and said, um, hey, I'm looking for this stuff. And one guy got back to me and said, um, oh, you want to go and talk to this guy, Udo, in Stuttgart? He's got everything. And so... Um, I called up Udo, who's a retired fuel injection expert from Bosch. I think he's in his 70s now. Mm -hmm. and he, collect, he collects all this stuff. Um, I went and talked to him um, in Germany, and he said, I'm really sorry. I've just got manuals. You know, I don't have the compressor maps. That's hardcore mm -hmm. stuff. You know, that's the guys who originally designed it have that stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he said, oh, I used to know the guy who um, was the chief designer of Daimler-Benz at the end of the war. But he said, you know, obviously he's been dead for a long time. Um, <laughs> but uh, he got back to me about two weeks later and said, oh, I just phoned his house number. And um, his son picked up the phone. And um, he's invited you to his house outside Stuttgart. So I went to Germany and went into this guy's house and um, talked to him for a whole day. And <laughs> he had this, the table laid out with all of his father's papers. And mm -hmm. he, had, he had the compressor maps, a lot of compressor maps, all the development steps. And um, he, said, um, he said, yeah, um, Daimler-Benz threw all this stuff in a skip in, I think, 1983. And he was also an engine designer who worked for Daimler-Benz, but for mm -hmm. obviously aut automotive stuff, not um, military aero engines. Mm -hmm. And um, he went back at night with his car and went into the skip where they'd thrown out all the papers from his father's office and he took uh -huh. them home. <laughs> so they, they were going to throw them all out. Uh -huh. and so he had them all. And uh, I was looking through them all in his house. And I found, wait a minute, I've got it here. So, oh, I don't know if this is going to show up. Ah, oh, this is so cool. So that's the, the d design and analysis of centrifugal superchargers for aero engines. Mm -hmm. And it's by um, Carl Coleman. Dr. Cole, yeah. And so he wrote that in 1947. Mm -hmm. And um, I asked his son, oh, is, is this published? And he said, oh, no. He said, I said, well, has anyone seen it? And he said, um, 
Yeah, there's a couple of PhD students um, who were doing a project for um, Voith who make fluid couplings um, because the fluid coupling is used in the compressor. And mm -hmm. they had um, they had come round because someone at the university has said, I know some old retired guy who's got all the fundamental papers on this. You can go and mm -hmm. get it. So um, I said, well, why is no one else? Why haven't you shown this to anyone? You know, th this is the technical memoir of one of the most important aviation engine engineers in Germany. Um, why has no one seen this? And he said, oh, no one asked. <laughs> so um, basically the whole, I, I looked at this manuscript, which I spent, mm. uh, I spent about three years translating it. So the English I've written in pencil. Uh, I, was, I was about to say, a lot of people listen to this, just the audio version. So Caleb is showing me like the original copies that he got from me. They are in German. And in very technical German, what I can only imagine. So it's a, uh, I'm sure it was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's really tough to translate because um, <laughs> German, like all languages, has changed quite a lot in 70 years, and um, it's uh, it's really clunky. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really mm -hmm. formal, even by German standards. So it's really tricky. Mm. Um, so I basically looked at this stuff and I thought. Okay, well, I'm this. I'm not going to write a magazine article anymore. This is a book. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to write six pages of A4 about this. It's too too much information for just a magazine. Yeah, it's too much information, and that's how it started. And so the quarter of a million word, 480 page book basically started as um, six pages of A4. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't have them here, but I've got the stack of my kind of drafts um, mm -hmm. back at the family home. So um, so they, they, they keep growing, I can't yeah, well yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah. So people say, how do you write a book? This is so huge. I say, well, you don't write a book. You just start off with a magazine article, and then you just make it bigger, and then you have 40 pages, and then you have 80, and then you just carry on adding to it, and eventually you've got a book. That's mm -hmm. there's no There's no magical process to it at all um some That's people really say some people say and i'm quite jealous of this they say oh um when i'm writing a book i just write the contents page and then i just fill in each of the subheadings until it's finished and i'm sure people do that but that's not how it worked out for me because I the whole focus of the book changed about three times during writing it so it uh, it 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 was an organic growth Hmm. Um, I, I didn't. It wasn't a formalized structure. That that's really cool. That's in well now in hindsight it makes sense and that was one of my questions for you. So without spoilers for people who want to read it, but I just found it fascinating how you started the book with the first chapter describing the Schneider Trophy, that something that happened years before the Second World War, and uh, you know for someone who is reading it, it makes perf perfect sense perfect sense the way you put it in there and it's kind of like oh this was the lab for the stuff that later on was the big players into the aerospace field and whoever was not in the shining trophy was actually basically not in the air in the aerospace war later because that was like the the lab for and i was like how 
how how you came up with that? Like I I can't imagine you go there and just like oh this engine is interesting. What it was the German Germans doing? What is you know what is uh, the equivalent in in England and stuff like that? That makes sense. But how you came up like in hindsight, it was like how we end up at this point. I just found that really clever, really well, really clever. I um. I thought about lots of structures. Mostly it was because I've got a couple of books um, which are really good as reference books, mm -hmm. which are on World War II stuff. And they're, they're written in a very engineering format, um, mm -hmm. which is to say it's uh, they're themat they're <laughs> thematically structured. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got one chapter on crankshafts, one chapter on valve train, and, you know, one chapter on one engine, another chapter on one other engine. Mm -hmm. And all the information's there. The research is unbelievable, and it's all correct, and it's all perfect, except, oh, my God, it's boring. <laughs> it's so boring. Yeah. Even yeah. for me, I, I've got one, but I can't finish it. I just mm -hmm. can't because there, it does not, there isn't a narrative, right? It's not mm -hmm. in chronological order. It's just stuff. And it's just math. It's just stuff. And after about 10 pages of something like, I know, you know, um, oh, we changed this valve to change the pressure a bit and they fixed this thing. And then at the meeting, they decided that was good. And then that was what they did. And, 10 pages of that and you just i just want to throw the book away <laughs> it's really dull and i thought if i write one like this i'm gonna sell about 20 mm -hmm. and um these 20 little guys in um you know there's the guy who wrote the the, the, the book that you're reading <laughs> yeah they're gonna read it and they're gonna enjoy it and everyone else is gonna get two pages in and think i can't even read this this is mm -hmm. so the 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 question was how do you put the information in in a way that isn't really boring <laughs> mm -hmm. and the only way to come up with that is that firstly you need a story which means mm -hmm. it has to be in chronological order mm -hmm. uh, it's it's really hard to make a story that's not in chronological order mm -hmm. um the book, as you point out, it jumps around a couple of times, but mm -hmm. basic, pretty much it's it's a, a straight chronological order story. Um, mm -hmm. And also, that's why almost a third of the book is quotes from letters and reports, mm -hmm. because I, I hate it when you get a technical book and it describes what someone who was much cleverer than the author did and they paraphrase it. Mm -hmm. And I think, wow, that's brave. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you're going to paraphrase something that someone clever enough to do that did? Wow, I'm mm -hmm. not that brave. So that's why a third of the book is direct quotes. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't want to paraphrase stuff. I want the reader to read what these guys mm -hmm. actually wrote. Um, so the book's longer that way because you can paraphrase a really complicated discussion down into a sentence. Mm -hmm. um, there's some really important stuff in there that, in my mind, are some of the most important discussions in aviation in World War II. Mm -hmm. Some of it, there's, well, there's one, I think there's four pages straight of um, the stenographic record from a meeting in Berlin when they're arguing 
about why this engine has gone wrong. And mm-hmm. I could paraphrase that to two sentences. And say, yeah, it's just like, oh, that's a meeting. They were mad because this thing was not happening. At, so at the they meeting, they were that. mad and shouted at each other because they didn't know what was happening. And yeah, that is what happened. But um, you the can get a nuance point, out of it. Yeah, if you read it all yourself, um, the great thing is you'll read those four pages and you'll think, uh, the first time you read it, you'll think, why has he put this in the book? Because this doesn't make any sense. You read the four pages and think, this is nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It's incoherent. I don't even know what the result is. And that's the point. They mm-hmm. didn't know. That's really what happened. The, mm-hmm. the meeting was that chaotic. They didn't know what was going on. They were angry. They didn't understand what the cause of the problem was. And so, um, that's why there's a lot of discussions that are just printed in the book straight, which mm-hmm. are kind of, um, they're kind of chaotic because that's what happened. And if you don't have that, you can't get a feel for what it's like. And what I wanted it to feel like is we've all, as engineers, we all know what's happy, but it's like in the design office when a project is going really well or really badly you all know when you all come out of the meeting room and everyone's silent and all the, all the designers are thinking to themselves, oh, this is not going to work. I have no we're, idea what to do next. We're never going to make this work. We're never going to make this work. <laughs> and you, you all sit down and you all kind of have to keep doing it and you know it won't work. And you know also what happens when something's going really well. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted the reader to understand is, um, in all the different design offices, um, what the atmosphere was like and why things happened the way they did. Because the what I wanted the reader to come away with was something very different from the usual wartime book. And the usual wartime book is, um, at least in Britain, it's something like um, all the the jolly good British people who all play cricket and are great lovely chaps were of course very clever and brilliant and they messed around in the shed at the bottom of the garden and made some magic stuff that beat the germans who were all evil bad uh people and story i'm simplifying a bit but there's a lot of books which are like that and Mm -hmm. i really wanted Mm -hmm. people to understand that actually um engineers the world over are basically the same we all get the same training we all trained in mathematics and vector mechanics and some metallurgy and a bit of chemistry a bit of physics it's the training is essentially all the same so Mm -hmm. we're all pretty much the same people there's some differences um but basically uh, they're all equally capable so the question is, okay, you've got equally capable groups of engineers in Britain and America and Russia and Italy and France. Why were the results so different? And the book is an attempt to describe what happens to different groups of engineers such that their results don't work. And I wanted to move away from, you know, the kind of... Uh, nationalistic viewpoint of 
why things succeed and why things fail. And mm-hmm. um, really, that's the conclusion of the book is that, um, without spoiling it, is that it's, um, well, which every good engineer knows, it's um, if you don't manage and resource projects properly, they don't work. And <laughs> you, you can blame all the designers, and, but usually um, it's not actually their fault. Designers are usually um, technical people are all pretty good the world over, and they just mm-hmm. need to be directed properly and resourced and they'll produce a good result or solving the right problems yeah that's what the book's about it's it's not mm-hmm. about uh, cheerleading for uh nationalities and mm-hmm. um yeah yeah so. that's absolutely fascinating Callum. that's something i love that you also do in the book and well people who are listening don't see that but you have to boxes that you you put the biography of people and that's something that i always love because we like we're so used at this point to see you know internet talking to people all over the world and seeing rockets going to the space and coming back and we forget that is it is just like we described it is people not necessarily smarter than i am that designed that how they come up with that and it's i found fascinating how in some parts you put a little bit of your view as well like Oh, this person, not necessarily based on these letters, not necessarily he was the clever, the most clever, but he had he had the best personality to kind of sell. Oh, we need to do this, and how he would present that would be well received upper the ladder, so the company would actually go that route, even if someone tried that before and was not successful, just because he had like a. A better personality let's say to present everything and come you know have the the right people in the room and stuff like that and that's just fascinating that's a that's yeah. a, it's, um, it's 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 a great description of how it is in the world and uh, as i said it's a there's a lot of lessons to to learn there yeah i i talked to um a retired guy from rolls royce and he um he didn't work directly with Stanley Hooker, who is kind of the most famous British kind of engine scientist in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was at Rolls-Royce during his time. And so he knew all the people who knew him and he met mm-hmm. Stanley Hooker. And um, he said to me, everyone always just talks about that. He was some mathematical genius. Um, and um Actually, he was very good, but maybe genius is stretching it a bit. It's maybe not really the whole truth. Um, mm-hmm. He said, actually, in his opinion, most of the reason he succeeded is not because Stanley Hooker is some magic, unbelievably clever guy who just somehow magically did it all by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it's because um, he was an extremely good communicator and um there's a couple of videos of him on youtube talking and if you watch them you can understand what he was trying to say he comes across um the authority he commands with his voice is very impressive and Mm -hmm. what he what he did is that to get Rolls Royce to accept the new designs for the supercharger, which we needed to win the war. 
mm-hmm. um, it, even in a war, in a commercial situation, it wasn't enough to make some schematic and go up to the boss and say, look, here's the efficiency for this new compressor diffuser. I, I want you to stop the production line so we can put this one in. It's 5% better. Um, they wouldn't do it. So what he did is that he worked with a guy in Rolls-Royce. Uh, I think it's I think it's Tony Dunwell. And um, he was an illustrator. And so um, Tony did these unbelievably good 3D section drawings of the parts that Stanley wanted to make for the engine. Mm-hmm. And it, you could say it's a little bit like today with people calling CFD colors for directors. Yeah, it's a, mm-hmm. a little bit similar. So mm-hmm. basically, he worked with Tony to make these beautiful illustrations, and they could go to the management team and say, look, I've done all the maths, and here's what it looks like. The, these are the parts I want you to make for the engine. And this um, combination of an illustrator and the mathematician that's what persuaded the management to introduce these engine upgrades. <laughs> and if, if we hadn't done that, we probably would have lost the war. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, you can't just say, oh, Stanley Hooker's this great mathematician and he did all this brilliant stuff. Mm. He worked with this illustrator and lots of other people to persuade the guys with the money who were under the pressure mm-hmm. to introduce this stuff. Because um, you can, and you can slag off these managers. You can say, it's completely crazy. It's a war. What idiots not to put in the latest engine upgrades. But imagine the pressure they were under. They're getting phone calls from um, the, the Royal Air Force saying, yeah. I, I need uh, 200 planes in three weeks or we're getting invaded. Imagine mm-hmm. that pressure. And then some designer comes along and says, I want you to stop, stop the line. line because yeah. uh, I've got a, um, I want to make a new um, impeller with a better mm-hmm. inducer, and I want a, a different diffuser, mm-hmm. and um, and and then I, w- I want to put a second compressor stage on the back. I want an intercooler, you know. I want instead mm-hmm. of having, I want a nicer curve for the inducer and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you can understand why um, it doesn't work that way. So um, I think that's the lesson for that: is that if if you can't communicate your idea, it doesn't matter if it's good. Um, it won't go anywhere, and therefore it's a useless idea. So mm-hmm. yeah, the math, the maths is actually a tiny bit of the problem. You have to mm-hmm. persuade everyone that you've got to do it, and you have to illustrate it and show and persuade everyone else that you can do it and what it looks like, because the other people aren't mathematicians. Um, they, they don't know what it means if you say, uh, oh, I want to change the inducer angle from three degrees away from the theoretical because we're getting stall um, under off design point condition. doesn't mean anything for a lot doesn't, of people. It right? doesn't mean anything. But if you show a drawing showing that the inducer has a different curve to it and you explain that the air coming in is hitting it at the wrong angle. People look at it. Oh, okay. I kind of get that. Yeah, that doesn't. Then it's showing the power curve of the engine. Like, oh, this is with and this is without. See the difference. Yeah. That's so the the problem they had back then is that um, 
they didn't have stuff like GT Power and other, <laughs> uh, you know, codes. So they they really couldn't give you a a really good prediction for the the power curve. Or they could they had to just do it all with maths, and mm-hmm. um, that's um, that's where dimensional analysis came from. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Capon uh, and Brook at the Royal Aircraft Establishment came up with that, which was to predict the power of compressors at high altitude when you don't have a high altitude test plant. So mm-hmm. it's even the stuff like dimensional analysis really kind of comes down to um, persuading people that you know what this piece of machinery is going to do in a different situation other than your test mm-hmm. data. And, and that one specifically is right at the beginning of the book when described that paper. And I was like, whoa, this is really interesting. I wonder if I, if I can find this paper. And then I tried to Google it. And the only way that I could find it was on your website where you took picture of it. I was just like, well, this guy really went, you know, <laughs> really deep into this. Like he, he, you know, everything that you mentioned is there and then you can read it. And yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> well, I know we've been t- talking for a while, so I guess some last remarks and a couple of stuff. So, and then you come back to your day by day job. How does impact, you know, how you make your decisions for like current designs and stuff like that. Do, do you often do some analogy and think about it? Oh, I remember what that happened during when I was doing the book. I remember that at some point I took this design decision. Do you often do this kind of analogy? Yeah, it happens sometimes randomly. Yeah, absolutely happens. Um, there's quite a lot of times I'll think back to reading some engineering discussion where they talked about something that didn't work mm-hmm. and it could be a completely different topic, but um, it, it might be completely relevant. And you think, okay, mm-hmm. um, I could spend a week doing some FEA on that, or I can say, okay, these guys um, who did this stuff said it doesn't work. So I'm just going to, take that on trust and I'm going to use that time uh, to do something different. Um, I went to give a presentation to uh, the Aachen Combustium, Combustion Symposium, which is not the uh, the main Aachen um, engine conference, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the Aachen uh, Combustion Symposium because uh, mm-hmm. I've been working on a, um electronic um valve train so very fully variable valve actuation and Mm -hmm. i was giving giving a presentation there at the conference and um after the conference um we went to uh to get dinner out um in aachen and um i was sitting opposite uh, a german professor quite a young guy actually um think um very young for a german professor i think he must have he couldn't have been 50 yet mm-hmm. and um i asked him uh, a question about um engine detonation um because i've been reading this paper from i think 1941 and i was still researching my book at this point mm-hmm. wasn't printed and um i said to him this is what this paper says um what do you think and he basically said to me, I can't, he said, look, I can't improve upon the answer in that paper. 
he said, look, I, you know, the, the guys who wrote that paper, um, they were there and they did it. And their level of mathematics and fundamental understanding is so high. I can't look at this today and give you some kind of quick comment that's any better. So he says, I can't improve upon this paper. Mm-hmm. You know, not without going and doing laboratory tests and redoing all the research. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really good. Cool. Yeah, I, I made a really humble from his side as well. Yeah, well, I, I made a LinkedIn post about that, which when actually did go viral, I think it had about one and a half million views. What? Well, yeah, it had about well. ten. It had about ten thousand comments, I think. Well, <laughs> something like that, and. Um, most people agreed with it. A few people got really annoyed, but uh-huh. basically, basically, um, I was arguing in the post that we weren't doing enough fundamental mathematics, mm-hmm. and um, we were doing you know too what? much. Maybe that's the first post that I saw from you. Maybe that's it. <laughs> yeah, go, go, go. I'll, um, I'll, I'll send you the link to it. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't believe it. Just it went absolutely crazy, and. and um, Actually, that's a very good hook for uh, one point that I really want to do. That is, uh, well, two things. First, it's funny how, you know, there is this YouTube videos of you giving talks and, you know, some stuff that you post on your LinkedIn. And it, I find funny, maybe it's because so niche, like engines for the Second World War. I found really funny that some point you just get one guy that's really annoyed. It's just like, oh, it was not the puppet valve that changed the world. It's like. Oh my God, like you spent years doing this research and this guy, like, I don't agree with you. Like, you don't agree with like years of research. I just find so funny how some people get like absolutely passionate in disagreeing with you for something that you did a research. You didn't actually, as you said, you didn't actually take sides. You're just like, well, they did this, they did that. And that's what happened. And this is what happened on the other side. Well, it's just, it's so funny how some people get like, you know, passionate about it. And then on Jodahan, the thing I, that I, think, I really like. I think there's been um, so much bad information put out there that people mm-hmm. have got so worked up into this um, nationalistic stuff about this plane is the best or German engineers are much better than all the other ones or English people are amateurs or any of these kind of generalizations. Um mm-hmm. There are elements of truth in all of them, or they wouldn't exist. Yeah, but yeah. they're 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 just generalizations. They're not really useful mm-hmm. um, when you're looking at a really complicated situation. For example, almost no one knows that. Um, for example, uh, Americans were only a tiny bit behind Germans in guided missile technology and rockets in World War II. Only mm-hmm. a tiny bit behind. Uh, the, you know, people make out, oh, Americans were just idiots, and then they took all the Germans and they did everything. And it's like, no, Americans had guided missiles in World War II. They only, we, we didn't see them because they came in after the European campaign finished. Mm-hmm. And um, so we didn't get to see them. So uh, in the popular consciousness, they don't exist, right? Because we didn't see them in the European battle. Mm-hmm. Um, the Americans um, reverse engineered uh, the German 
V1 Pulse jet, and they actually produced it. And um, there's one in a museum in America. I think it took them about four months. So they mm-hmm. had that. Um, both America and Britain were producing uh, Delta Wing stuff. Everyone looks mm-hmm. at the German Delta Wing stuff, and it kind of looks a bit space age. And they say, oh, these Germans are magic people, and no one else could do this. And Britain and America were also doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't succeed with it because of the priority given with the war situation and so mm-hmm. on. It's, it's, it's not because the American aviation engineers are stupid and don't understand what Delta wings were or, um, mm-hmm. or how guided missiles work. I, th- I think Americans even had um, also guided missiles with TV cameras um, wow. in, de- in development in World War II, as did the Germans, but not many people know that. They think mm-hmm. all, the, all the magic stuff comes from Germany. And what I'd like people to take from the book is the reason that stuff came up in Germany is not specifically because um, German engineers are much better than all the other engineers. It's because they misdirected their research. Mm-hmm. And Britain put very little resources into kind of futuristic projects. And Germany put a huge amount of resources into futuristic projects, which was the wrong mm-hmm. military decision. But if you get a whole lot of scientists and give them unlimited funding and give them a whole load of resources, they're going to do magic stuff. Yeah. And yeah. That people misinterpret that to mean that there's something fundamentally special uh, mm-hmm. that couldn't have been done by the French or the British or the Italians or the Americans or the Japanese or the Russians. And um, there are cultural differences in engineering. You'd have to be stupid to say there are not, but Mm -hmm. um, they're not sufficient to mean that um, nations can't develop technologies um, if they need to. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. And that goes to the second part of that is that not only get people annoyed, but you're really vocal about telling them why they're wrong as well. And that's absolutely something that I love that you do. Not, as, not just with stuff with the book, you're in pretty generic stuff as well, like the development of uh, electric cars now in the UK and stuff like that. And I like that because I think if you go to the media, you have actors and politicians giving their opinions on energy, transportation, things like that, having zero background about it. They just think, looks cool or sounds pretty or something like that. And you have very little people like yourself and me who are engineers who know a little bit, not necessarily we're genius about it, but we know a little bit. We know why some stuff don't work or why some stuff should work and we should focus on that. And most engineers that I know, I don't know about on your side, they don't really voice it. They don't don't like to get involved. And that's something that I, I find really interesting, including Thing really recent that you posted about a book that you you read. I forgot what is the name, but uh, it's something that I always thought about. That people talk about, you know, the horrors of the Second World War and etc. And the reality is, if you were growing up in Germany, you know, and you were like sixteen, seventeen, probably you would be in the in the Nazis' body. That's just the reality, and it's not because you were a bad person. That's your reality and that you would grow up in that environment and that's who you would be 
and it's pretty <laughs> naive to judge the past with the lenses that we have right now. Yeah, it's um, the book is called Ordinary Men. That's one. And, yeah, um, I uh, I recommend anyone who has any philosophical interest in life mm -hmm. at all um, to read it. Um, I've been. Uh, it's absolutely horrific, and um, I think the only book I've read, which was maybe even harder to read, um, was by Viktor Frankl. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, and um, he um, was in the he went through the concentration camps, and um, he I think it's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor. Mm -hmm. I think it's Viktor Frankl. I couldn't finish it yet. Yeah. It's so, you know, so upsetting. Um, I actually couldn't do it. <clears throat> the most upsetting bit um, wasn't the way the guards treated the prisoners, although it's awful. Um, the worst is that to see how the uh, the people in the camp degraded because of their surroundings, and they became, mm -hmm. um, in some cases, um, almost as bad as the prison guards in terms of their selfishness because mm -hmm. the self-preservation kicks in so you shouldn't imagine that in the prison camps it was all the prisoners helping each other and all the guards attacking them um it doesn't work like that because the situation is so horrendous that the brain um stops working in a civilized way um, mm -hmm. but I, I think with regards to the book ordinary men the the lesson from that is um yeah, I think people, a lot of it's driven by um, media sales. So um, when the media discovered that everyone loves watching documentaries about Hitler and um, crazy Nazi projects, um, basically, I mean, I was making fun of this on Twitter last week ago, last week, because I posted about a year ago about how stupid all these documentaries were. And then a week ago, um, there's a new documentary called Hitler's Secret Sex Life. And I, I posted the screenshot from a year ago when I, I said, I bet someone's going to make some nonsense documentary about this. And basically <laughs> what this comes down to is that we've in large part imagined that um, World War Two is about Nazis and the good guys. And and it is, but not in the way that it's portrayed. So the way it's portrayed is um, in Germany, there are Nazis and we have to kill them or they'll destroy and them. And everyone there was evil. They were born yes. that way. They're evil and that's it. They're bad. Yeah. We are we are born good. They're born bad. So that's, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. And um, so uh, it's imagined that because Germans have a proclivity for obeying rules and enjoying order that this gave them a natural proclivity to developing the sort of Nazi mindset. Um, mm -hmm. This is basically nonsense. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, in Britain, uh, there was quite a large uh, sympathy for the Nazi cause. And in America, there was a, an even larger sympathy for the Nazi cause. Um, Same as South America. And this this is all over. And what it is about is ideological possession. 
And so some ideologies are so clever and they have to be or they don't survive um, mm. that they are able to subvert um, your thought processes and turn you into something monstrous. And what Ordinary Men is about is uh, one of these uh, sort of death battalions who went and shot women and babies in Poland. And they were actually just a normal police unit, basically, before they were sent for this job. Completely normal men. This, this was not some hand-picked sort of psychopath group from, you know, uh, prison or something. A perfectly ordinary police unit, uh, family men, and it's describing how these family men um, were changed into a group who would shoot women and babies and mm -hmm. how that happens. And mm -hmm. the point of this is any, almost any, normal person who is subjected to this ideology um, will do that and most people don't want to know that because um, mm -hmm. they like to think of themselves as good and the nazis as intrinsically bad mm -hmm. um, in fact the nazis were just ordinary germans who had become ideologically possessed mm -hmm. At the top, yes, there are nut psychopathic nutcases who are organizing it. Mm -hmm. But um, basically, uh, your average German Nazi is a normal person who could have been your brother or your sister in any country of the world. And you if, you, right. if you don't understand that, it means the next time this happens, you won't get it. And you'll because get you're not aware of that you'll get sucked into it because you'll think I'm a good person. Yeah. No I one. I don't, I don't yeah, need to worry about bad things because I'm good. So I'll just know it's bad and I won't do it. So, yeah. no, you, you will do it. I, I'll, I'll definitely read it, but I bet. And that's, uh, I'm going to mention about not a book uh, for you, but the thing is there is not like a tipping point or like, Oh, this happened. Now I'm monster. No, you, you go slowly into this process and you never think about it as that would happen. There is an awesome movie called The Wave. Not sure if you've already seen it. I don't know it. Oh, you, I, I'm going to find it and I'm going to send it over to you, Caleb. You're going to love it. It's about a high school teacher who makes an experiment in Germany and they make a little coat and they look after each other and how the whole thing goes off rails. So I'm not going to give any tips because I'm just by your side, you're going to absolutely love it. And the one in, in, in parallel to the one that you mentioned about uh, the prison camp, someone that went and et cetera, I'm curious about that one. The one that I couldn't finish yet is um, the Gulag Archipelago. It's about a man who are, who was a soldier, absolutely in love with the Soviet Union, went to the army because he wanted to, he believed it and everything. At some point he did something wrong. Not on purpose, but he went to the camp because that's what happened and how he was treated. And it's just monstrous. And it's really funny because uh, the final thought for him was very, very similar. Just like this can happen again if you're not aware. So, well, man, we have been here for almost two hours. And 
Yeah, it's, it's just um, fascinating. It's, 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 it's gone really quickly, and I feel we've only just scratched the surface of a lot of topics. Oh, there is so so um, much. If you enjoyed this, I'm absolutely going to call you again because there is so many other topics that I would love to cover with you. A friend of mine just mentioned, oh, you should do an episode about the um, ethics of developing as an engineer developing weapons. I was like, well, that's a very good topic because you know I can see from the point of view of the of the engineering purpose. Oh, doing a missile doing a gas turbine that's fascinating but then you're like how far does it go your responsibility would you just refuse to design it but someone else would do it do you know what i mean it's a it's a tricky conversation to have and uh well you would you would be an awesome person to discuss that kind of stuff so that would be okay. that would be fun i'd enjoy that and um also i haven't even had a chance to ask you about your professional work which is just as valid as mine oh but uh that goes for another two hours, so we can uh, we can have another one. And uh, okay. I guess just as a as a closing note this time, I just uh, want to ask you to tell the, the listeners what's next for you, where people can find you, and uh, yeah, what do you have in your mind? Uh, so what's next for me? I don't know, but my plans are that um, I'm going to be at it's probably going to be next year now, but I, I'm going to be launching an online course for engineering. Oh, um, really? Which um, I'm uh, I'm working with uh, my old university on at the moment, mm -hmm. um, but it's going to be licensable external to that, and it's basically a kind of um, fast track course in trying to inject some kind of industry lessons into mm -hmm. um, graduates um so that that's the kind of idea behind it so it is i'm just going to be looking at some real practical stuff that i've done um with analysis thing stuff that you can do very quickly and it's useful that um you can spend years in industry before you pick up so i'm trying to put that into a an online course for for people which to help maybe accelerate um graduates a bit when they're they're studying or just coming out so of this, university like you, you never stop to amaze me I, I thought you were about to talk about your next book and then you talk about something else that is just as incredible <laughs> um so that that's um that's happening um i'm going to be on tv very briefly on the yesterday channel uh, they oh, do a really? they do a series called uh, War Factories, mm -hmm. so I'm doing a little bit of recording with them in a few weeks. Uh, I think it's probably a few months till the episodes come out. Um, mm -hmm. Although I think I'm probably going to be on the screen for about a minute or something. So <laughs> still awesome. <laughs> I don't I don't, re I don't really know um, uh, if that'll turn into a, a TV career or not. I think they're maybe not ready for. <laughs> The kind of engineering i'm interested in uh i'm also going to be on the um we have ways podcast um with um, al murray and james holland so that's mm. if you're if you're into your world war ii history that's mm -hmm. a, a good podcast um so oh, i'm going to be recording that in about um three weeks mm-hmm and there are other books coming out as well, um, which is the, the uh, this thing here I'm showing on the screen here. So the the memoirs of the 
engineer in Germany whose son gave me his father's papers. So because I've translated it all, um, mm -hmm. that's going to be published by ASME. So that's American Society of Mechanical Engineers uh, later this summer. And just to, because I, I read a little bit of what you put already in a website, it's not just a memoir, but it's almost like a, a hands-on guide of the development of tubal machines in general. Um, so basically, I showed it to Dr. Gulen, who is a, of, of Turkish descent, but he's a turbo machinery expert um, for mm -hmm. Bechtel Corporation. Mm -hmm. And um, he's written a couple of... Um, textbooks on turbo machinery development from a fundamental level so i showed this book to him the manuscript and he said okay we need to publish this and um, mm -hmm. so it was dr goulden approached asme to get it mm -hmm. um published but he has basically completely reworked um the manuscript so um i understood most of the theory in the manuscripts on a kind of basic level, mm -hmm. but um, Dr. Gulen's been through it all and he's basically completely rewritten it so that um, you can read it now and it all makes sense because the, um, this is the topic for another podcast, but the, the, the techniques the German turbo machinery guys use to evaluate um, the compressors is a, a bit different and if you just picked it up and read it, you would think this is strange because you don't have pressure ratio. Um, mm -hmm. They did everything in terms of adiabatic work. Hmm. So the, the y-axis of the um, compressor map is in adiabatic work. It's not in pressure ratio. So if, you, if you're not familiar with this, you kind of look at it and think, what, 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 what are these units about? Why, you know? What does this mean? Yeah. What does it mean? So Dr. Gulen's gone through it all, and he basically explains, because of his expertise from first principles, what all that actually means, mm -hmm. such that um, any engineering student can now read this and think, ah, oh, okay, <laughs> now I get it. That's what it all means. So he's, um, with all that work, we've doubled the length of the manuscripts. So mm -hmm. it's um, it's almost the same length as the Secret Horsepower race now. Well, all right. I'm already looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's going to come out. Um, so the best place to find me is on Twitter. So that's Callum Douglas one. And I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So it's pretty easy to find me on there. And also have a Facebook page. And I'm on YouTube. So you can find me on any of those places and i'm gonna leave everything in the description here and just you know with your authorization what you already mentioned to me i'm just gonna mention to people as well if you are interested and i think you absolutely should be into in calum's book go to the publisher website and not in uh not say other names like not don't go to other places go to the published website Callum gets a little bit more out of that and also the publisher so that's uh that's best for everyone. So <laughs> I just wanted to put it out there. Cool. Thanks for that. Yeah, I, I make more money if you buy it from the publisher. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's what, what people story, should do. Please do that. Yeah. <laughs> that's story for another podcast episode, by the way. <laughs> cool. I'm going to start the recording here. Thanks, Douglas. Cool. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. Um.